Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. All righty. Um, so if you are a guest, um, we have been traveling through the book of John. And we like to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And I really love today's passage because it's super practical, super applicable. It has a really beautiful metaphor. It's this metaphor of living water, living water. And so if you're taking notes, let me go ahead and just give you the sermon title for this. It's Jesus is the living water for those who thirst. Jesus is the living water for those who thirst. And if you've been tracking along with us for a little while, uh, you've noticed that there's some heat growing between the uh, Jewish people and the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And he's trying to continue to proclaim who he is as the promised Messiah, the Christ who has come. In this moment, in this chapter, he's at this giant Jewish feast of the tabernacles or the, uh, the feast of the booths which they're gathering together in small kind of man-made huts that reminds them of their time of being in the desert as they're moving from uh, slavery in the land of Egypt onto the promised land. And they're celebrating this feast, reminding themselves of God's care and provision and salvation. And at this feast, Jesus stands up and basically says, this entire feast is pointing to me. And so let's unpack this together. And again, I want you to take the idea in your mind. Jesus is a living water for those who thirst. Now, guys, if we're honest, that phrase actually deep down describes all of us, right? Those who thirst. And guys, we acknowledge this reality to some degree or another that there's a longing deep in our hearts. Guys, even culture acknowledges this when they speak to the sexual dimension of our life, right? We hear on Netflix or we listen into lyrics and we hear this idea of someone thirsting after another, right? We, we've heard that phraseology. But past the jokes of that and the mockery of that phrasing is the truth that Jesus speaks about right here in John chapter seven. It's the truth that our hearts are indeed tired and they're weary. And they're dry and they're full of unmet and unfulfilled longings. And that's what the Bible calls thirst. But the question is, what are we all thirsting actually for? And the answer is this, we're thirsting for more. We want more fulfillment in our life. We're wanting more love. We're wanting more beauty, more entertainment, more affection from people, more comfort, more human approval from our bosses, our our friends, our loved ones. We have a thirst for more than this beautiful but yet broken world can actually offer you. And so the question that begs to be asked is this, how are you and I to quench the thirsts that we have in our hearts All of those unmet longings, the desires you have sitting here right now, the things you pray for, the things you hope for, how do we actually go about quenching those thirsts that are in our hearts? Well, sadly, one pastor, his name is Steve Hoppe. He says this, we often try to quench this thirst by doing this. 
sipping on salt water. Now listen, if you've ever done that, you've been to the beach or there's like a salt water pool and you get some of that in your mouth, you're like, this is, this is gross, this is terrible. Especially if you try drinking it, thinking it was fresh water. That's my favorite thing that I remember about going to the beach when my kids were super young. The first time at the beach, they're like, water! And they're just in their hair and in their hands. And they're like, oh, I wonder what it was taste like. And they take a big gulp out in the non-moving south, southie. Yeah, all y'all parents that bring your kids out there, out to like Carson Beach and Castle Island. There's nothing moving other than the dead things that are in there. Kids take that salt water in the mouth. and like, this is terrible. This is kind of what Pastor Hoppy's getting at. We try to quench our thirst with things that look like they're fresh and life-giving, but they end up being salt water. He says this, that we drink from things that we think will quench our thirst. And they look and they feel and they sound like they can help us. And they might even quench our thirst for a short amount of time. But in the end, not only do they fail us, but they leave us more thirsty in our hearts than we were before. And they leave us with these devastating consequences when we drink from the salt waters. It leaves us with spiritual challenges and emotional problems and mental health issues and physical and relational consequences. We drink from the salty oceans, guys, often of money and sex and control. Or we drink from comfort and and busyness and religion and approval and success. Because here's what those things tell us. They promise us that we'll have unmatched pleasure if we can finally have sex with this person. Or they promise us limitless comfort and joy and strength and peace and excitement if I can finally buy the things I want to. If I can go on the trips I desire, if I get married to this person and have some children. Finally, I can have the life I want to. Sometimes even we look to moral type of things and we think if I do the right things and say the right things and vote for the right person and be a good person, then it will remove my fears and my worries and my guilt and my shame. If I can just do right, then all my problems will be taken care of. So I gotta live a good life so nothing bad happens to me is what we think. Sometimes even... The salty water promises to fill the void in our hearts and soothe the aching pains that we feel. In other words, they promise paradise, but sadly they provide pain as we turn again and again to the salty oceans. But guys, imagine for a moment that there was an actual drink that could really quench your heart's thirst for more. Imagine a drink that could satisfy you emotionally, and mentally, and spiritually, and relationally, now and then forever. Guys, imagine a real drink that could erase this nagging void within you, like that 1 a.m., 2 a.m. anxiety that hits you. If you could just take something and drink from it, and it could remove the anxiety, bring peace in the heart, to bring you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. What if something was given to you that produced that sort of fruit in your life. Guys, imagine a drink that could give you the paradise of peace, both now and forever, that you've been longing for. Well, Jesus offers you this living water drink right here in John chapter seven. And if we drink from it by faith, then we will find lasting satisfaction in the world of devastating 
thirst. So today we're going to unpack four things together. We're going to learn four things about this living water from just the first two verses of John chapter 7. Here's the four things real briefly, and then we'll unpack each one. This living water has one source. This living water is offered to anyone. This living water is to be received by faith. And this living water can truly quench the driest of hearts. And guys, each of these points that I just shared with you, again, were kind of edited and adapted a little bit from Hoppy's book called Sipping Salt Water. I really recommend this book to help you think through how Jesus is the living water. It's been a great resource for my own heart, and I look forward to sharing more today. So here's the first thing we're going to unpack. This living water has one source. There's one place, one person you turn to to find the quench for our heart's biggest thirsts. Verse 37 says this, on the last day of this big feast, remember the feast of the tabernacles, they're reminding themselves of their journey from slavery into the promised land. On the last day of the feast, the great day, and I like that music in the background, reminds me of the great day. Imagine it now. That's kind of how we feel, right? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stands up in front of everyone and cries out, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me for a drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now just, I need you to imagine this for a moment, okay? Um, It's really big in Boston, 4th of July, obviously Declaration of Independence and the kind of past with Boston and its place in the revolution, all of those type of things. Imagine we all go for the 4th of July down to the fireworks down at the Esplanade. Now, some of you have done this before, and they close down Starro Drive, and there's businesses that are shut down, and people are everywhere. The fireworks come off for the 4th of July. Everything's booming, exploding. People are celebrating. As the lights are crashing into the air, you can see everyone's faces. They're looking and they're enjoying it. And imagine at the Esplanade, the very last part of it, someone comes over the loudspeaker and says, if anyone wants true freedom... Join me in the revolution. Trust in me for what I can do for your real freedom. Some of y'all be like, that's just real cheesy, Jesus. Like, what are you doing? If he were to stand up at the end of the celebration, be like, hey, the celebration was pointing to me. Some people were angry. Some people were confused. Some people thought it was cheesy. And some people believed. But that's kind of the moment that's happening when Jesus stands up at the end of this feast and says this whole entire show, this all in thing, that we're looking at all of this points to me. And so they asked the question, why? Why is Jesus standing up at this particular feast? How does this particular feast point out something about himself? Because he screams out, indeed, I'm the true living water. So what's going on with the water at the ceremony that he calls it out? Well, here's why. Let me unpack this for you a little bit. Guys, on the seventh day of this Feast of Tabernacles, which the text calls the great day, it's the last day of the feast, there was this large golden bowl that was filled with water from this special pool in the temple. And it was carried back in procession to the temple led by the high priests. So basically the high priest would take this bowl and fill it up in a special pool and then everyone would be gathered kind of in a line behind them following them in this bowl, in this water ritual. Now, this water ritual served as a reminder of when God brought forth water from the rock. If you remember that, maybe from your Old Testament reading at times, 
There was a moment in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20 when the Israelites were traveling through the desert and God brought water forth from a rock. And it was this living water in the desert that saved the people and sustained the people from perishing in the desert. Christian, do you see where we're going with this? Do you see how this can point to Jesus? And as the procession approached the water gate, as they all walked along with this bowl, there was three blasts from this shofar trumpet that was sounded. And that trumpet was often used in moments of celebration. That trumpet goes off and the priest would then begin to move towards the altar at the temple. And everyone would be gathered around. And by the way, there was tons of people. There are hundreds and thousands of people. It was commanded that they would go up to Jerusalem. And so there would be pilgrims from other places gathering in Jerusalem. There was thousands and thousands and thousands of people following this procession. And the priest would then begin to process up to the altar with the golden bowl. And at that time, the temple choir would begin to sing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, which include these lyrics, which says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, for he will open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. They're singing this song. And at this very moment, at the height of this procession, the priests are pouring out the water as a sacrifice to God. And in this moment, Jesus stands up and cries out, I am that living water. I am that ritual and what it's pointing to. I'm the one that saves you from perishing in the desert of your sins. I'm the one that brought that water from the rock. I'm the one that satisfies your thirsty longings of your heart. This entire feast is about me. If any one of you is still in thirst, let him come and drink from me, he says. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water in the driest of places. Guys, do you just see how beautiful and poetic and intentional Jesus is? It's a little weird to like end the party this way, but the entire party's purpose was to point us through this ceremony to Jesus. And it's so poetic, it's so beautiful. Jesus is boldly declaring that he is the one that comes in the name of the Lord, which is what the crowd is just singing. He's the one that's gonna open up the gates of righteousness so that you may enter into heaven by faith in him. He's the source of living water poured out on that altar, the altar of the cross. He's the one poured out so that you and I could be saved and satisfied and sustained in him forever. Guys, even more boldly, I may add, is how incredibly exclusive Jesus is being here, which is not a culturally sensitive thing to do then and not a culturally sensitive thing to do now. Jesus was being incredibly exclusive with his claim to be the only source of salvation and satisfaction. This is a super bold moment for Jesus. And listen, here's what he says. Here's the exclusivity. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to, and then what's it say? Me. Ooh. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in who? What's it say? Me. He repeats it twice. Whoever believes in me will have living water. Can you guys just notice, Jesus doesn't leave much room here. He doesn't come and say religion and good works and moral deeds and being a good person. If you come to those things, 
You'll be saved from your sin. You'll go to heaven. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, you need to go further into your job. You got to earn your worth. You got to climb that ladder. You got to gain more money. And then finally, you'll be satisfied. People will look at you as valuable and important. You have a comfortable life because you have all this money. Jesus doesn't say that because those things never work. And he doesn't say, hey, guys, if you want to find pleasure and euphoria and excitement, you got to turn to sex. You got to try dating. You need to get on the apps and you need to go after relationships because that's the only place you'll find true love and meaning and belonging that you crave. He doesn't say that because none of that's true. No, Jesus is being incredibly exclusive here. Why? Because he loves you too much to see you drink salt water when he is himself the living water. Amen? Guys, religion is where people try to achieve their way to heaven through good works rather than they should receive their way to heaven by faith alone and the works that Jesus already did for them. So here's what I love about this. At a religious feast, Jesus doesn't say, turn to the law. If you obey it, you will have a better life. He doesn't say, give your money, give your money, give your time. Help set up chairs at the temple. Do more religious things. Let's have political activism. And then if you do these things, you will feel better. You'll be a good person. He doesn't say any of that. He tears down what religion often tries to build up, saying, be a good person. Don't do the wrong things. You'll go to heaven. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me for salvation. Don't turn to law. Don't turn to religion. Don't try to earn your way to heaven by being a moral person because you can't. None of us can be good enough, including myself. None of us are moral enough to come before God and say, God, I should go to heaven because I never sinned. No, Jesus says, come to me because I died for your sin so you could be forgiven and you get heaven with me in it for all of time. Do you see? He's being exclusive because he loves you. He's trying to be clear where salvation comes from. He loves you too much to let you drink from your career where people try so hard, especially in the city, to try to prove their value to someone, to prove their goodness, their worth, their importance to the world. He loves you too much to drink from relationships, to watch you go from person to person trying to find love and satisfaction when only when you see how much he loves you and died in your place, that that's how much he loved you, that that's what satisfies you, not the love or the arms of somebody else. Jesus is the only source of living water. He's exclusive, no room, because he doesn't want you to be thirsty in your soul any longer. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing is this. This living water is offered to anyone. Now, I love that. Jesus is incredibly exclusive on one end. I'm the only way, but then he's incredibly inclusive to who he invites in. Isn't that just like Jesus, right? He doesn't fit in one box. He's not like Mr. Conservative. He's not Mr. Liberal, not saying he's moderate, but he's not taking a side on the political spectrum here. I think that's what I love. He's not team exclusive, team inclusive. He's saying, listen, I'm the only way, but anyone, anyone, everyone. 
can come to me and find what their hearts really long for. I love this. I love this. I love this about 37. Verse 37, he says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me for a drink. Now, I love that. If you're thirsty physically for a drink, that means you're in a place of need, right? You ran a mile or if some of our friends, you guys are like super hardcore runners. You guys do marathons and 5Ks and I, I can like not do that. I can like drive by you, you know, as you're doing it, I can like bike past you some, but like I just get exhausted. Like yesterday I was walking up the hill to a, a wedding and I was pushing the kids and like I like got out of Emily's backpack, like Kiana's drink, like her sippy cup. She's like, daddy, that's my drink. I'm like, baby, I love you. I just don't care right now because I am so thirsty for a drink. And I'm like drinking apple juice and whatever floaties and backwashes in the thing. I'm just, I don't care. I just need some water here. When, when we are thirsty, we're in a place of need. And Jesus says, that's the only people I take. Is when you're aware of how needy and hurting you really are. And Jesus says, if that's who you are and you realize you're in need of something and you're tired of carrying the weight of your own life on your shoulders, your future on your back, it doesn't mean that you don't plan or don't try or don't put effort towards your life, but it means that you can't handle the weight of your life on your shoulder. What's next? And how do I plan for my life? And what do I need to do here? And how do I make this decision? What's next? It's too much for your shoulder. And so Jesus says, if any of you thirst, any of you thirst, come to me. Come to me. And guys, that word anyone, anyone is just really significant because it makes it extremely clear who Jesus is inviting. That word anyone, guess what it means in the Greek? Anyone. It means anyone. Here's who he invites. He invites the old like Abraham. He invites the young like Timothy. He invites the drunk like Noah. He invites the liars like Jacob. He invites the abused and neglected like Joseph. Jesus invites the murderers like Moses. He invites the afraid and nervous like Gideon. He invites the prostitute like Rahab. He invites the adulterers like David. He invites the backsliders and the rebellious like Jonah. He invites the suicidal and depressed like Elijah. He invites the suffering like Job. He invites the divorced woman that we find at the woman at the well. He invites the anxious like Martha. He invites the deniers and the deconstructors like Peter. He invites the self-righteous like Paul and this is what I love, he even invites the physically dead like Lazarus to come out and come to him. Guys, the invitation of Jesus is far reaching and full of grace. And if you're here this morning and you're like, yes, Aaron, I believe that God is far reaching for those who don't yet know him, but what about me? I have tasted and seen that God is good and I've trusted in him but I keep turning away. Is the grace still for me? We would say, absolutely, it's still for you. In fact, that's what Jesus is saying. Because you turned somewhere else, Christian, even though you have drunk first from the well of Christ, 
if you are still thirsting, if you are still struggling, if you're still turning otherwhere, guess what he still says to you? If any of you still thirst, come to me. That's what I love about Jesus. Anyone. And he can say anyone because he sees everyone. He knows already where you've turned. He knows where you're looking to be satisfied. And he says, turn again to me. Find the deepest longing of your heart met in a continual drinking and walking with me. Guys, there is no mistake here. It's not like we can say, doesn't he know who I am? And doesn't he know what I've done? Guys, yes, he knows the stains that your sins have made. But this is the beauty of Christ. Jesus died on the cross so that your stains of sin could be washed away. The scripture says, whiter than snow. And because of his grace, we find ourselves at the same crossroads of John chapter 7. The invitation of Jesus is for anyone whether you've never placed your faith in Jesus and you're always drinking from religion or morality or thinking you'd be a good person or maybe you've drunk from irreligion and you're like, I'm gonna live my own way and I want freedom and I don't wanna try to follow any of God's laws because you thought laws were the way to heaven. You're like, I don't wanna do any of that and I wanna drink from where I wanna drink from and I wanna do with my body what I want to. Maybe you've not drunk from religion, but irreligion. And Jesus says, if, if you found that that hasn't worked, because indeed he knows it doesn't, he invites both the religious and the irreligious to come and drink from him. You don't got to clean yourself up, make yourself pure. He invites you to come as you are, and then he loves you enough to change who you are so that you can have a better life of flourishing in him. Amen? Anyone means anyone. Anyone means me, and anyone means you. Number three, this living water, this living water is to be received by Faith, received by faith. In verse 38, Jesus again says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now in this verse, we see that we receive this living water by believing again, not by achieving, not by following rules, not by attending church services, not by serving the homeless shelters, not by being raised in a religious home or by being a good person or voting right. My goal today is not this. If you've been drinking from other places, you just need to try harder. You got to plug into community more. You got to be reading your Bible more. You got to be praying more. My goal is not to put law on you and say, that's how you drink better. The goal is that you are to receive this by faith because God already did the work. And when you realize the work he's already done to satisfy you and your deepest longings, you drink from the work that was already done. Does that make sense? You don't have to earn your way to try harder and muster up more in order for you to finally drink this living water. It's by reflecting and reminding yourself and rejoicing in what God already did for you on the cross how he's already looking out for your life, what he's already see you and views you as because of the gospel and you drink that in. And we'll get to more of that here in just a moment. But we can only receive living water by believing in Jesus. Again, not achieving it through moralism. But what must we believe about him in order to have access? Here's just something simple. If maybe you're new to the Christian faith or you're considering this here or online, here's 
what we are to believe about him when he says, believe in me. We are to believe these exclusive hard claims that Jesus is the only God. He's fully God. We're to believe that Jesus became a human person. He's always existed as God the Son, but God the Son took on human flesh. He became fully human. We're to trust that Jesus was tempted to sit from all the salt waters of life, yet he never drank a single drop of sin. No, not one. And Jesus took the death penalty that was owed to us, but he took it on him for our repeated sinful trips to the Oshi salty waters. And he died in our place where we should have died because we fell short of God's law. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and will one day come back to restore a paradise that was lost in the Garden of Eden. We must believe that Jesus himself is the Savior of the world and not that just he's a good man, not just that he's a good teacher, not just that he's a prophet like the crowds in verse 30 and 40 thought he was, that he's not just one path's of many to God. For Jesus says, believe in me. Now listen, if Jesus had suggested other ways to heaven, he would have said it. He would have told you, hey, you can try Taco Bell, good luck. You know, you can try this, you can try that. Jesus continually says, just believe in me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Jesus would have told you if there was another way. But what I love about Jesus, he doesn't say, there's the path, get on it. Jesus says, hey, I I am the path because I walked it myself for you because you couldn't walk because you were dead in sin. I walked it for you. And there at the cross where you should have died for your sin, I died for you. And then I rose from the grave to rise you up from that place of sin and give you life and joy in me. Christianity is not about you trying, walking, earning your way. It's the fact that Jesus already did it for you. And we must believe, Christian and non-Christian, that Jesus is the only true God. And when we turn and trust in him alone, not in moralism, we receive the living water of love and forgiveness that saves and satisfies for all of eternity. Last thing, number four. This living water can truly quench the driest of hearts. Now guys, here's where I'm hoping to get pretty practical, okay? Um, we've talked a lot about theology, kind of high view, big theory. Okay, Aaron, I get it. God promises to satisfy my heart, but my heart is not satisfied and I still believe in Jesus. So what do I do? This is hopefully what we're gonna enter into. But let me again remind you what Jesus is saying here. Here's the offer. Jesus tells us at the end of verse 38, whoever believes in him, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Even earlier in John 7 and John 4, Jesus says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Those who drink of the water, and by the way, drink doesn't mean just one time and then you never drink again. When Jesus says for those who drink, it means continually to come back and drink and drink and drink. Those who drink of the water I give you will never be thirsty again. And so it's right here that Christians often ask the question, Aaron, I've already trusted in Jesus and I drank this living water. So why do I still thirst after things? Why does my heart want money and pleasure and power and comfort? 
Why am I still dissatisfied with my life? Why am I depressed? Why am I anxious? Why am I longing for more? Did I not have Jesus? Now, can we just be honest? Have you ever been in that place or am I literally just preaching to myself? Have you ever thought that in your life? Like, why am I so jacked up? I thought I got Jesus. What's going on with me? Well, here's the honest answer. It's hard, not trying to be a jerk to you today, but hear me out. This is why we still often struggle. It's because we half-heartedly and infrequently drink from the living water of God's grace and truth found in the gospel. Let me just beat you up one more time and say it again. Just hang with me, okay? Why are we often still dissatisfied? It's because we drank once and we walked away. You drank in college through a Bible study and you were on fire then because you had a couple of buddies that you did that with and you were really excited in college. You had all this time. And then you're like, what? what's wrong with my life? Maybe God's not real. And you begin to think about de- deconstructing the, for the faith. You're, you're like praying. You're like, I don't see my life. And you, you begin to take steps backwards. And maybe it's because we've half-heartedly and infrequently drank from the deep wells of God's grace and truth that's found in the gospel. We've lost sight of the beauty of what Jesus has truly actually done for you. So here's what happens. Here's the analogy. Sometimes Christians wrongly assume that trusting Jesus for the first time is like taking some magic happy pill. And if you just place your faith in him, you take this magic happy pill, and then all your sadness goes away. All the heartache leaves your life. And that's why many have been in ministry for over a decade. That's why many times I've seen people fall away and deconstruct from the faith. They're like, I don't see God's power in my life. There's no way I can see that he's real. And we've detracted and cut ourselves off from this source of living water. And we don't drink there anymore. And we, we move away from it. We forget the truths and the grace of God. And sometimes then we try to do religion again. We're like, I'll go back to church again. I'll read my Bible again. I'll, I'll try to give money. I'll try to serve my community. I'll go to community group every weekend. We try to muster our way back to God like an army crawl through the mud. And Jesus is like, wait, before you army crawl through the mud, can I show you what I did for you? Can I show you? Can I, can I help you see what I've done? So you don't have to army crawl your way through relationships to find love. No, no, I, I've already done it for you. You don't got to army way through money and your job and security to find that your future is going to be okay. So you got to get the promotion to get that more money so your future is satisfied and it's okay. It's secure. You're going to be okay. You don't got to army crawl through because listen, I've already paved the way for your future. I'm already sovereignly in control of your life. I'm going to work out everything for your good. And this is what he's trying to help us slow down and see. Because anytime he says, Anytime and every time we thirst, we have a longing, we are discouraged and unmet desire. We're to come to him and receive the truths about his love, his power, his grace, his sovereignty that are found in the gospel that will satisfy that thirst. And so let me show you some practicalities of what to do and how we do this. Let me just be real with you. Here's one for me. Maybe you struggle with this too. This is just me. Let's say you're struggling with a sense of self-worth. Another way you could say it is confidence. Another way you can say it is your identity. You don't like who you are. You look yourself in the mirror. You don't like your weight. You don't like your hair. You don't like the trajectory of your life. 
In social settings, you get awkward and you're uncomfortable because am I performing well enough? Did I say that right? Was I funny enough? Did I talk too much? Do I look okay on this date? Did I lose enough weight? Did I, did I gain enough muscle? Buy the right clothes? We struggle with confidence and self-worth. And if that's you, here's what you're often saying to yourself, trying to drink water, but you're drinking the salt water. When you drink from the salt water of self, you'll often say this, my self-view swings between two extremes. And if I, and if and when I live up to my standards of beauty or intellect or my social game, if I live up to those standards, then I'll feel confident. I finally feel good about myself once I get done with this PhD and once I get done with this conversation or once I arrive at this financial place, if I get to my standard and I accomplish it, then I'm going to feel confident. There's a pathway and a ladder. If I can just climb it, I'll be confident. I'll have self-value. But then when you reach it, on those rare occasions we do, you're proud then and you're arrogant and you're unsympathetic and you look down on people who haven't climbed as well as you have. Is that the type of confidence we want? Arrogant, prideful, confidence, that's not it. But what happens if you don't live up to those standards of beauty and intellect? If you don't live up to those standards and you based your standards on those, then you feel devastated. You feel like a failure. If you built your life thinking if I can do these standards and climb that ladder of whatever, then then I can make it. And if you can't make it, then what? You're left devastated and you're crushed. And it's not a humility, it's devastation. You're drinking from salt water and you're shriveling up. Guys, have you ever been there before? Is this what we struggle with? Guys, this is where I'm at. And we must come to the living water of the gospel and we drink of the grace and truth to help us with our self-confidence, with our self-worth, with our identity. And here's what we say. We say, I look into the gospel and I see my self-worth is based not on my achievement. It's not on my morality. It's not on how smart I am, how far I've succeeded, not how much money I have, not how beautiful I look, not how great my body feels, not the position of leadership or authority I have. My self-worth is not built on anything less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. In Christ, we find these two truths, that we are sinful and lost, but yet loved and accepted. Listen, this is a hard truth Tim Keller tells us. I am so bad that Jesus had to die for me. That keeps your confidence humble, right? I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me, but I am so loved that he was glad to die for me. And that boosts that sense of self. Does that, does that make sense? And the goal is not like, oh, pastor's giving me self-help today. I'm saying y'all struggling every day with it. I'm struggling every day with this. And the balance between humility and confidence is found in the gospel. I am so bad. I feel so worthless because I sinned and I needed Christ to die for me, but I'm not left there in my depression because Jesus didn't just have to die for me. He wanted to die for me. He was glad to die for me. And in that, I find that I am valuable. I am loved. I am important. I am significant. So much so that God put human flesh on, put himself on the cross and died for your sins in particular. Like that's how much you're loved. Find a boy on a dating app that will love you like that. 
You won't. And when we're hungry and thirsty for relationships, to be seen, to be validated, do you not see how hard I'm working? Do you not see what I'm doing behind the scenes? Do you not see all the effort I'm putting out? Jesus tells you, yes, I see it, but I want you to see that I'm the one caring for you. I love you. I I see all the effort that you're doing. And when you think no one cares about you, let me show you how much I care for you. That I've worked for you on the cross. I've worked behind the scenes before the foundation of the world to choose you. Then I brought along your family line so that you would be born one day. And when you'd be born, I made sure the gospel would come to you. I would make sure that you would have the faith to believe and you believe. I would hold on to you when you doubted me the most. And then when you pass away later in your life, I'm going to bring you to heaven and heal every wound. Wipe every tear away. That's how much I love you. So when you struggle with your self-worth, you don't like yourself, you hate yourself, you look in the mirror and you say, because of the gospel, I build my self-worth on nothing else that I'm bad enough for Jesus to die, but he's glad enough to die for me. That's where I find my worth. Does that make sense? That's just me. That's what I got to tell myself every day because this is the place where I struggle the most. Let me give you one more for sake of time, okay? Let's take one more. Let's say you're facing some criticism. PhD people, raise your hand. This is your life. PhD is just stands for criticism, just with the wrong letters, okay? When you're facing criticism from others, maybe it's your PhD program, but maybe it's your friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your roommate, your coworkers, whomever. You're being criticized. When that happens, here's what we often do. We drink from the salt water of self, and we often say this. When I'm criticized, Man, two things happen to me. I'm either furious because they're criticizing me. Do they not see how hard I'm working? Do they not see what I'm worth? Do they not see me? Or on the other end, you're not furious. You're devastated. You're crushed because you're being criticized. Well, why are you either furious or devastated? Because at the heart of all of this, you believe deeply that you are a good, moral, hardworking person. And so when something threatens that self-image, you are angry or you're devastated. And so you act out in anger or discouragement because when you're criticized, someone's telling you this isn't good enough. And you might interpret it as you're not good enough. That's my life, by the way. I wish I could hear criticism as, hey, I love you. I want to help you. But not, here's how I hear criticism is, hey, I love you so much that I want to fix you. You're broken, you're damaged, you're wrong, you're bad, you're immoral. And I need to help you do better so that you will become better, so that you will be enough. Every time I hear criticism, my heart tells me, Aaron, you aren't good enough. And if you do what they say, finally you'll be good enough. You'll earn their respect, you'll earn their love. Then you'll be good enough. Then you belong. And that's what happens in my heart. And that's what happens in your heart. When you're critiqued by your spouse, that boss, you say, man, I just, I'm so mad or I'm so hurt. Do they not see how hard I'm working or what I'm doing? And we're crushed by criticism. And so rather like me drinking from salt water, we've got to drink from the living water of the gospel. And so Tim Keller tells us, here's how we can do this. We drink from the grace and truth of this. Here's what we do. We say, when I'm criticized, yeah, I'm gonna struggle a little bit, but it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good or moral or smart or successful person. And so sure, that can be critiqued because that's not who I truly am at my core. 
That is no longer my core identity is my success, my morality, my intellect. Because if that's critique, that's fine because that's not my identity. I am not what I do. I am not what I think. I am not what I earn, right? So we tell ourselves, my identity is not built on my record of performance. It's built on God's love for me in Christ. That helps you take criticism well because they're not attacking your core identity. Someone might be saying, hey, I want to talk to you about this hard conversation because there's something in your life that you're doing that you're drinking from a salty ocean. And so I just want to call you out for that. But hey, I love you no matter what. I'm not telling you this to fix you in order to make you good. God's already made you good. He already died for you. He already cleansed you. So I'm telling you this because I love you. Not to make you finally good enough, but because you're already good enough already in the gospel, I want to love you and say, hey, there's some areas in your life that are out of sync with what you believe and it's hurting you. Does that make sense? Make sense? Guys, these are just two areas of a thousand. We could do this with money and sex and pleasure and comfort and power. We could do this with a thousand things. That's just what my heart struggles with. So like, let me just confess to everybody today what I'm dealing with. And hopefully you guys find some application for your own heart in that. Guys, when we turn to the grace and truths found in the gospel, we drink from how God views us and what God has done for us and what that means for our everyday life. This is the life in the spirit that Jesus ends with in our sermon today in verse 39. He says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, which John tells us refers to the spirit, the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Guys, the spirit of God produces the well-watered fruits in our life of love and joy and peace, forbearance and kindness and goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in our lives. And if we're not seeing that fruit, it's because our root of our heart is not rooted in the living water of God. The fruit can't grow if the roots aren't planted in Christ himself. So if you're not a loving person right now, you're struggling with patience and you're not really forbearing, you're not being really kind or gentle towards others, God's not saying, do better, try harder, staple some fruit on your life and hopefully that goes better. He's not saying that. He's saying we need to drink deeper of the Holy Spirit, of the truths of the gospel, and then we'll note love begins to boil to the top of our life to give others. Why? Because you know then how loved you are, that Christ died for you. If you're struggling with patience towards your kids, towards your spouse, why are you struggling with patience? Because we often forget how patient God is with us when we rebelled, when we turned from him, when we drink from salty waters. And he's patient with us. And we reflect, we remember, yeah, God, I remember for years I ran from you and what I do in my heart. And you are so patient and kind and good to me when I run. Let me remember that. God, thank you for treating me that way. I feel so loved. You're patient with me. And out of that patience, we turn that to our others and we love them from that place of patience that God gave to us. Does that make sense? That's how we drink from the living waters. And so here's the Holy Spirit does is, Verse 39 tells us, when God sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, began working in the world in a unique way, the Holy Spirit first opens our eyes and convicts us of our bondage of where we drink from. The second thing the Spirit does is that he strengthens us to spit out whatever salty water we're drinking, which is another way of saying he's causing us to repent. God. And then third, the Spirit does this. He turns our hearts to the gospel over and over and over again. Turns our hearts to the grace and truth there 
So we're filled up with the affections of Jesus and we grow in love and joy and peace because that's what God gave to us. And we pull from what he's done for us. We're able to give that to others. And we've got to drink from the well of the gospel. So again, what's the spirit do? He calls you out. He strengthens you to spit out the water. He turns your heart to the gospel again and again. So as we close, hear the words of Jesus one more time. And church, wherever you're turning to, the goal now is not just try harder to repent. It's turn from what you were drinking from and turn to Christ as he says this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. May we turn to him today and see all we need is truly found in him.